when you have a company that you actually really believe in and you're proud of your organization and the way it's being run and the way Mm -hmm. the values, that comes through to your merchant. That comes through to everybody you're dealing with in the industry. We're still selling to people. People are people. And guess what? People like authentic people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Authenticity really, really, really matters. Hey, retail fans, welcome back to Retail Oriented. I am your host, Mike Fowler, the VP of Retail Strategy here at the Sales Factory. And today I am really excited to welcome a special guest, somebody that I've known for almost 20 years and a lot more hairstyles than that. Um, She's a great friend. She's the former president and owner of Empire Level and the current SVP of Business Development here at the Sales Factory. Uh, Help me welcome Jenny Becker. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be a fun conversation because Jenny and I have got a lot of history together and she has got a wealth of knowledge because she's seen this industry and retail from a lot of different sides. So we're going to kind of dive into that today. But can you first start us off with just kind of your background? How did you get into it? I know it was a family business. So can you walk our listeners through... How do we get here today? Sure. It's uh, hard for me to believe that I've been in this industry for as long as I have because it was never, ever the plan. Went to school uh, and got a degree in education and literary studies, got my master's in education, was a school teacher, wanted to become a school principal, was working on a PhD to become a school administrator. Never did I think I'd get involved in the family business. I had worked there summers, you know, in the factory. making hand tools. And in 1997, my stepdad said, you know, come and try it. You'll you'll be 25 in a year. And if you hate it, go on and do what you were going to do. And so I said, that that seemed logical to me. I was always about trying something new. I learned every facet of the business. I first worked in supervising in the factory and then moved into purchasing. And I did a rapid fire throughout our whole business. Um, and a year later, there was no way I was leaving. There was no way I was leaving. I, my stepdad was golfing every day and I was working 60, 70 hours a week. And I'm like, oh, he is really a smart guy. He got this <laughs> going. I fell in love with it because I fell in love with the people. I'm a Midwestern girl, born, raised, and um, I loved people who made stuff with their hands. They were my favorite people. Uh, And I I really felt like a true family business, not just my family, but we had moms and daughters that worked generations in the factory, cousins, everybody knew each other in some way or another. The people that produced our tools, average 10 year, 20 years, 25 years for a factory. Yeah, It's so rare. I loved that. It felt like home to me. And I liked the competitive nature of what was happening in the industry at the time. We were underdogs competing against huge companies, global conglomerates. We were hanging in there. Yeah. And I loved the- Not just hanging in there. We were doing it. Uh, You know, (laughs) we were like the Rudy of the hand tool industry where, you know, they shouldn't even be able to compete and they're showing up and they're still doing it. And so it was twofold. I I loved the idea of just making things still, Mm -hmm. real things, tangible things. And then those tools were used to build other things. Like it felt really good. But I also liked the competition. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> you and I have both been around this industry for a number of years now. We won't age you ourselves by going into the exact details there of the length of our relationship and the length of your tenure at, at Empire, but you've seen a lot of change mm-hmm. in the space in that time. Kind of walk us through some of the major evolutions that you've seen in this industry over that period of time up till today. As far as um, selling into home improvement retail, um, I got in right at the time where change was happening yep. in a major, major way. Our business manufactured the Craftsman level line and square line since 1929 we had been doing it. We were one of the first vendors that produced Craftsman tools. I mean, back in the day, the Sears and Roebuck catalog that like my grandma always had out, like that was the retailer to be a part of. And, And so our business grew with that business. By the time I was involved, Sears was in decline and we've kind of all seen what's happened there. Well, some of our younger listeners and viewers may not have even even know know Sears. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You maybe heard about it. Right. (laughs) Um, And so 80% of our business was the Sears Craftsman business when, when I got on board. That's significant. And it was declining quickly (laughs) at that point. So what are we going to do? Like we had to really have a plan. And so the idea was to build our own brand stronger and start competing in the retail space that was evolving around Sears. And that's actually how I got to know the sales factory. They were a big part of that story for me. But what we saw happening was big box retailers like Home Depot and Lowe's getting more powerful every day. And it didn't just impact Sears. There were mom and pop hardware stores all over the place that you could go and sell and you know, have decent business with, and those were consolidating too. So we saw the consolidation of power and purchasing power within home improvement. It was the heyday of that, right, as I got involved. Yeah, so that was kind of phase one of evolutions that we've seen in our career lifetime, Mm -hmm. right? What was kind of the next phase? Because I'm thinking about, you know, e-com was not a thing when we started. Mm -hmm. And so now we're seeing all these digital platforms and marketplaces. Have there been other big things or talk a a little bit about e-commerce and when that emerged? Because that was really starting to emerge yeah. Towards the end of your tenure at, at Empire. Yes. I mean, I, I remember back, not about business, but right at that time, it was Amazon was a book dealer, Yeah, um, which I loved. I, I'm an avid reader <laughs> yeah. and I used to buy books on Amazon all the time. That was it really yeah. at that point. People knew it was going to take hold though. Mm. There was a lot of talk for years. It reminds me a little bit of the talk about AI right now. Like what's exactly going to happen, right? (laughs) We know it's going to be big. What's exactly going to happen with it? And e-com was the same way. I remember as we first started um, having to help retailers, homedepot.com, Fastenal, we had to help them with their e-com platforms as far as giving them the right product information and the right product descriptions. And I remember my stepdad being like, this is such a waste of time. (laughs) Like if people want a tool, aren't they just going to go to the store and get it? This is just a complete waste of time. And I'm like, well, dad, you know, (laughs) these retailers seem to think it's pretty important. So we got to do our part and partner. I sold the business in 2015. And by then we were all ordering everything, you know, ordering stuff online, including tools. And I mean, I don't see that going away. I also don't see the retail, the brick and mortar retail space going away. What we've seen is this connection 
between I'm looking on my phone, I'm looking on my tablet, I'm researching this, I'm finding the better price, I'm standing in front of a set at Lowe's while I check to see the price at Home Depot. There's a lot more power in the consumer or the professional contractor consumer today with all that information. It's sort of like it all goes downhill. Yeah. Manufacturers lost a lot of power to these big box retailers, but big box retailers lose power to consumers today. Yeah. And so it's kind of what comes around and goes around and the power dynamic seems to be shifting more and more to the individual, which I don't think that's a bad thing, actually. I think yeah. that's that's I think that's an okay thing, especially yeah. in a country like ours. That that's all right. That's an interesting ob- observation because it, it's kind of who has dictated the trends in different categories and dictated the direction of the marketplace has changed a lot since we've been observing this, right? From manufacturers to saying, this is what we're making and this is what you're going to get to retailers saying, hey, we need this because our consumers are telling us this. And now all the way to the consumer, which is saying, all right, Mr. or Mrs. Retailer, you don't have what I need, so I'm going to Amazon. And it's changed quite a bit in who's dictating terms. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If I have 10 choices right from my iPhone, so... You know, right. you better cater to me because I got lots of choices out there. That's the power of the consumer yeah. today. Just thinking about the evolution of of the marketplace in your time, how has the relationship between manufacturer and retailer changed, if at all? I've seen that shift into, I think, a nicer place than yeah. it was for a while. The brick and mortar, large brick and mortar retailers back in you know 2000 they could call the shots yeah. and they loved to pit manufacturers against each other and negotiate the best deal that i mean who wouldn't it makes good business sense i get it back in the day of you know uh, shootouts and line reviews that would last all night long and everybody <laughs> had to be there and go in and out of the room and negotiate back and forth and you'd see people sweating and some people's whole business was on the line yeah. because of how much volume those retailers could do. There was a huge differential in power and the manufacturer felt it and sometimes resented it. I mean, yeah. nobody likes to be controlled that much. So it did, it felt like a fight, like you were going into a boxing match. Mm. I feel like what happened is retailers got programs that were cheapened. If you were going to negotiate us that hard, well, you're going to take cost out of your product. You know, maybe you could have made something domestically. Now you're going to go overseas. And the programs that the retailers got got weaker. Yeah. And their comps went down. And they went, oh, (laughs) what are we going to do about this? Like, why? oh, we actually need to partner with the manufacturer to give the consumer the best program. And so I saw that shift. It actually didn't take very long. I would say right as the 08 crash happened, there was this, ooh, we better work together. (laughs) Yeah. Feeling that went on. All hands on deck. And data became super, super important where if you could come in and present to the merchant solid information about why things were happening the way they were and and where the price point progression should be and what brands are going to uh, the consumers aware of and clamor for what features and benefits they care about with data if you could present that mm-hmm. you became such a valuable resource to that retailer or to that merchant 
that they were willing to longer term partner with you yeah. and go, yeah, maybe we don't need a full online review, but let's just do a business review in your category because we need partners. Yeah. And you can see that pretty clearly still today where there's certain brands that are aligned with certain retailers mm -hmm. and now they have long-term good partnerships. It's harder to break in sometimes because of that. It just feels less one-sided today than it was and offering a better program because you're working together with, with the retailer. Yeah, so that like 2008 timeframe, you mentioned that's when data kind of really came into the fold as really important. That same time frame, really understanding the consumer and talking to the consumer and then working together with your merchant was like, that was the new found solution and equation that was working out in sales, right? Like yep. that's when it was starting to lift sales is that's when the recovery started exactly. really in, in earnest is because when those partnerships started, is that Exa fair to say? I, exactly. I would say in 2002, you'd go into a sale on a sales call to a retailer and it was all about your product, right? You'd mm -hmm. line it out on the, on the table. It was features, benefits, why this product is better, which is important. That's not unimportant. Yeah. But that was the whole discussion. And by 2009, you'd go in, you'd have that discussion, but then everybody would pull out the reports and you'd show how sell-through was happening, how yeah. turns were happening. If you did a price test, say, and, and lowered the price by $2 in a certain region, let's analyze what happened. It turned into a lot more business conversation, almost secondary to product. Now, if your product was absolute crud yeah. <laughs> and it was falling be, apart, yeah. no, you're going to have that conversation. But it, it really became more of a business partnership as opposed to I'm, you know, selling goods out of my bag. Yeah, right. And that as you said, is still the case today. And so it's important for manufacturers that are out there watching or listening to this is that is the relationship that you're striving to develop with your retailer. Yes. A lot of manufacturers still think it's selling the products out of the bag. Here's the price for this one. Here's the price for this one. Here are the benefits. Can I have the business? And yeah. that's not really what works today, at least in big box retail chains, yes. right? Especially. Yes. So I think that's important for our listeners to just kind of keep in mind and, and earmark, especially if you're trying to break in. There's a different expectation in some of these retailers than maybe the way that you've gone to market in traditional distribution centers or mom and pop or anything like that. It's just a little yep. bit different yep. and a different uh, yeah, game in, plan is required. Innovation still matters. Awesome yep. products totally still matter, but you better have the business case behind it. Yeah of what it's going to do for the merchant. Yep. You know, if they're going to give you shelf space, they want the return on investment. So yeah. show them how that's going to happen. So you got to be really on your A game. You got to have the great product. You got to have the innovation, but you have to have the business acumen yeah. too when you go into those calls. In this kind of time period that we're talking about, we've seen some really powerful brands that have gone away, retailers, brands, manufacturers, and we may have already kind of talked about this, but is there are there any of the other things, intangibles that it takes to survive now? Because it's not getting easier. 
Yeah. It requires more, as you just said, you got to have the cool product mm -hmm. that is solving a consumer problem, but you also have to have the business case and the marketing and everything to back it up. Yeah. What are some of the things that are required? Um, yeah. Those are it? all very tactical things. Yep. And those are the basics. Like you have to have those things. I think there's some softer things too that help with withstanding the weather, if yeah. you will. Authenticity in your brand. That sounds hokey, like especially yeah. in this world of everything so fake, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, and choreographed. But when you have a company that you actually really believe in and you're proud of your organization and the way it's being run and the way mm -hmm. the values, that comes through yeah. to your merchant. That comes through to everybody you're dealing with in the industry. We're still selling to people. People are people. And guess what? People like authentic people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Authenticity really, really, really matters. And I think we've all met people who are really passionate about their business and genuinely care. And you want to be around them. It's, it, sure. it gives you energy. You can't fake that. Running your business in a way, if you're an executive or an owner or a leader, in a way that's genuinely authentic and yeah. getting out there and communicating that, I think is really, really important. I think learning, being willing to learn and change and sort of pausing your own thoughts for a minute and going, oh, okay, I'm going to listen to other people. Maybe I'll reject it, but maybe I'll learn something new. You never stop learning. And if you feel you know it all, <laughs> if you feel you know it all about your product category, about business, you're you're gonna fail. Yeah. Like so you gotta be open to learning, changing, growing also. To some extent that vulnerability and desire to learn and not know it all breeds authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the the interesting things that I've kind of talked about on the on the podcast and in other arenas over the past couple of years is trust. And authenticity breeds trust. Mm -hmm. I've heard it said a couple of different ways, but trust is the number one economic driver in the world because people do business with brands mm -hmm. and retailers and people that they trust. It's just our, in our nature. And that doesn't need to mean that you align perfectly on everything. Correct. But they trust you and they're going to they're going to spend their money with you when they trust you. Right. And that's that's huge. Yes. So authenticity will breed that. But it's not a short game. Yes. You got to be thinking yep. in the long term. It, it boils down to do what you say you're going to do when you make a commitment in business, yeah. whether it's to a merchant, whether it's to your employees, whether it's to a vendor, it doesn't matter. You try to honor that commitment every sure. time. Yeah. And that's all. It sounds so simple, but. <laughs> It's not, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, business gets complicated and things get muddy, but honoring and doing what you say you're going to do, those are just some basic things that human beings want to do business with you when you're like that. Yeah. And a lot of times it, it what I've seen is it'll, it requires sacrifice in the short term, but you're playing a long game mm -hmm. and playing the long game, building that rapport and trust and partnership with your retailer is what's really going to pay yeah. off down the road, right? Yes, yes, yes. We've been talking about the past, how to survive. What do you see coming down the line from uh, the, the standpoint of manufacturers specifically and how they're approaching their relationships with retailers and with consumers? What, what do you think the future of manufacturing looks like? Are there some things that you see on the horizon out there? Maybe not exactly how they're going to go because we don't know the future, but as key 
things to be paying attention to. The COVID pandemic gave manufacturers a little pause around the world, Mm -hmm. I think, right? Supply chains were disrupted here in the States and in Europe. People were worried about some basic needs that we have and were we going to be able to get medication or whatever it was that we needed. We um, all remember the toilet paper. Yeah. Oh, right. The whole, <laughs> right. Running around and going from store to store to try to find toilet paper um, in what should be the most advanced country in the world right. seems a little off. And maybe this is a little bit of my personal bias um, coming from manufacturing and loving it. I do think people are going to be looking a little more locally around the world Mm -hmm. to make sure that they can supply people with what they need in their area. And so I'm hoping that there's some sort of a revival of manufacturing in in the United States because of that. And it isn't necessarily about, you know, competing with other parts of the world as much as it's common sense to make sure you can provide what you need for a civilization. That's a business opportunity. And I'd like to see more upstarts in manufacturing talking about that and saying that's why they are going to start a particular business or expand their manufacturing. We'll see if that happens, but I'd like to see it happen. So that's Mm -hmm. sort of a wish and a prediction all in one. Also, you know, Logistics are expensive. We're talking about fossil fuels and, you know, the cost of oil and like the idea that we can manufacture in one or two places and then spread it all over the world. There's a shortage of truck drivers, you know, more local production eliminates some of those logistics issues too. So there's an opportunity there. I also see, this seems like modern technology, but now it's old technology. I remember when we got our first 3D printer. Mm-hmm. in our product development team. <laughs> oh my goodness, it was so exciting that yeah. we could produce prototype parts in a day and put together new concepts that we could touch and feel and look yeah. at. And now that technology has come so, so far that I think you're going to see more and more individualization of product, like customizing things, mm-hmm. because you can today. Mm-hmm. I think changing and innovating that cycle's going to be quicker and quicker and quicker because of technology. And I, I think that's a good thing. I think that's exciting. It keeps us m- propelling and moving forward and, and always having to think of what's next. So I think if you're a product designer or an engineer today, it's a really fun time yeah. to do that. You have so many more tools in your arsenal to play yeah. with and bring things bring things to market. It's important to keep the consumer in mind when you're developing these products too, because you're right, lead times and product development cycles are changing and shrinking dramatically. There is a tendency to say, okay, I've got a cool idea. I'm just going to put it out there in the world and not vet it and test it. But it's still really important to get your idea Mm -hmm. in the hands of real end users and see how they're reacting, see what their needs are, because they'll react in the marketplace with their wallet. And if you miss that step, you're going to have a big disconnect. And eventually (laughs) you'll lose their trust. What is this? They don't understand me. And just because you can do something (laughs) does not mean you should. That's Um, just good life advice. That's just good life advice, advice, listeners. Um, You know, at Sales Factory, we talk talk a lot about this four-part process, which if you've listened to any of our stuff, I'm sure you've heard about it already, but which is know your prime prospect, Mm -hmm. know what they care about, know what problems they have and how you can solve them. And you always have to ask those questions 
as part of the product development process. And if yep. you do and you test it out every time, you're going to have success upon success. Yeah. As a small business, as a family business, as you're trying to keep pace and compete at this pace, what does that look like for them? Do you think there are any unique challenges there that they need to be aware of? I love the idea of more startup manufacturers mm-hmm. in this country, right? But how do they do that? What is the approach and where are the pitfalls, I guess? Coming from from a family business and now I'm on the board of some other family business and I'm working here, which is a family business. So (laughs) I think family businesses are great. There's also a ton of pitfalls that you can fall into. Kind of goes back to the just because you can, maybe you shouldn't, which is just because they're family doesn't necessarily mean they should be part of the family business. I mean, it's classic, right? It's the age old issue with family businesses is making sure you have the right people in the right seat with the right skills. It doesn't mean you can't share the wealth of a family business with family members not in the business. There's plenty of ways to do that, right? But you really have to be careful about who you're bringing in and making sure that the talent is there and thinking about the business piece first, because if you don't, your business will deteriorate mm. and then you can't help the rest of the family. Right. So some of those decisions are very difficult. I have two siblings. They were not involved in our family business. It just wasn't their thing. Yeah. It wasn't They weren't cut out for it. It wasn't their thing. They had some other opportunities from the family business, but they weren't involved in it. And my stepdad, he had some siblings that same thing. They weren't involved. And I think that's part of why we lasted as long as we yeah. did. It's fun to have that family business. In a small business is the same way, right? You get to be buddies with your employee. Everybody knows each other so tight. If you can't step back and be that person that can make those critical judgments, hire someone who can. Yeah. It's a business first. It's a business first. Right. It's like being a parent where you're whining kid and you just finally want to give them what they want. Yeah. That's not always good for them in the long haul, right? Yeah. So it's similar to that where you have to think about the long-term impact as opposed to short-term comfort. We've kind of talked about manufacturing in the U.S. as well as outsourcing and taking things overseas. How do you make those decisions in a good, sustainable, ethical way? And then how do you approach those decisions just from a business standpoint? Like this makes sense, but this doesn't. Mm -hmm. And where do you start to draw those lines? My experience with that was tough. Uh, We were a vertically integrated manufacturing company, so we didn't make our own packaging. But we made pretty much all the components and every piece of our product for a long, long time. As things got more and more competitive, we had to ascertain what were actually our core competencies. Just because we were vertically integrated didn't mean that we were competitive at every facet of manufacturing. So we really looked at our operations, our equipment, our human skill set, and said, what are the things we're super good at? world-class, and what are Mm -hmm. the things that we know there's people that are better at Mm -hmm. this? And so we sort of put things into those two buckets and then started looking for partners that were very strong where we were weak and wherever that was. I mean, we we did business in Mexico. We did business in Taiwan. We did business in China, Korea. Like we had partners all over, uh, other partners in the United States that were manufacturing. You know, just like any relationship, sometimes you'd start with them and it all seemed great. And then six months <laughs> in 
and and you got to be willing to move on yeah yeah you know, and find partners i'll say our extrusion supplier out of texas we partnered with for 35 years wow they were their core competency was very straight aluminum extrusions which is important in our product line and they weren't the cheapest but they had a core competency in something that was vital to our product. No different than finding the retail partner that works for you and you can grow with. Finding those vendors that you can actually have a partnership with is vital. They become part of your team. And you know, I had some very bad experiences <laughs> where companies I worked with were deceitful and mm -hmm. you know, ended up in legal battles with them and none of that is fun. So finding, doing your due diligence, doing your homework. Price is important, but it's definitely not the only yeah. thing. Finding people that you feel like you have things in common with and can have honest conversations with really. And yeah. I talked to some of the owners of those companies still today. They become <laughs> friends of mine for life. Yeah. Some, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's totally fair. I think I'm hearing kind of a common theme through this conversation, which is something that we haven't really touched on the podcast yet, but, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm kind of hearing that there is trust in the core of relationships on all sides of your business and developing that trust whether it's manufacturer to extrusion vendor, manufacturer to consumer, manufacturer to retailer, and all around mm -hmm. that, developing relationships that have authenticity and are developed on trust, that's where you can start to find some sweet spots and you will see it down the line in the development of your brand, sales, sustainability, and being able to make those decisions that are challenging but lead to trust and doing mm -hmm. what you say you're going to do on all sides is where it really starts to come together. Is that? Absolutely. That and especially if you're a small or a medium sized business, mm. right? If you're a really large company, you can hire all the people you need, yeah. right? You can go buy your aluminum extrusion company, to, you know, <laughs> yeah. and now you're vertically integrated. If you're a small or mid-sized business, finding allies, finding partners, mm -hmm. developing them, it's imperative. I got to know Sales Factory because I didn't have a full marketing team at Empire. And I got to know Jed, the owner of Sales Factory, and after, you know, he, he tried to sell me his services for a long time. But once we started working together, it's the perfect example of that kind of partnership where he became an integral piece of my business. You were there. You saw that happen. <laughs> it was a partnership that really made a difference. We trusted each other and we were honest with each other yeah. and it was a genuine relationship. I really encourage small to medium-sized businesses to go out and find those allies. Yeah, and here we are 20 years later, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. still sitting at the same table having exactly. talks about mm -hmm. it. So that's pretty fun. I never let any guests go without a couple hot seat questions. Oh boy. So unfortunately, oh you've, got to, oh you've got to take boy. a couple hot seat questions. The way this works is I'm gonna ask you a question, you're just gonna give me the first thing that pops into your mind, right? So kind of rapid fire response. First one is we know Wisconsinites take their cheese very seriously. Who has the best curds? Oh, that is very, very, very tough. 
the best curds are at, I'm from Waukesha, Wisconsin. So it's a teeny town outside of Milwaukee. There is a restaurant bar called Tally's right down the road from our house. Yeah. I'm going to say they have the best curds. I've nice. Ever had. Go to Tally's. Go to Tally's. Check them out. As a manufacturer turned marketer, what's one piece of advice you'd like to give from the other side of the desk? So if you could give a piece of advice to manufacturers out there, anything that comes to mind, what would it be? Don't snub your nose at marketing and think it's just an added expense <laughs> that just dips into your bottom line. It is a key way of connecting your product to the consumer, but make it real, make it authentic. Don't make it smoke and mirrors. I like that. Make it authentic, guys. Last one on there, I kind of made a little pivot as we were talking because my f original rapid fire question was, you're a kickboxing boxing instructor. <laughs> so who in the retail world out there would you want to punch? But I might also ask you a follow-up, who would you want to hug? Because we talked about trust and building relationships. So who do you want to punch and who do you want to hug? <laughs> a specific retailer sure. itself? Yeah. Whatever um, pops through your mind. We had a long standing relationship with with Home Depot. Yep. Um, we were in from store one. And so I'm gonna say my answer to both is Home <laughs> Depot because it depends on the on the point. I learned a lot by trying to sell them and work with them and partner with them. And sometimes the lessons were tough and that would be yeah. the punch part. Yeah. But the hug part would be at the end of the day, I mean, I, I really feel I learned a lot from them and it's been exciting to see from the days of bernie marcus to now yeah. what's happened with that business i think that's probably also true in life all of the good relationships that you have out there mm -hmm. at some points you want to punch them and yeah. then other times you want yeah. to hug them hopefully the majority is hug right yeah it, it is <laughs> awesome well jenny it's such a pleasure to talk with you so thanks, thanks. for coming thanks on. thanks for having me it was great mike appreciate it so there you have it. I really enjoyed that conversation with Jenny. I hope you did too. We learned about small manufacturers, outsourcing, trust and relationships, the past, present, and future of retailers. Um, so we hope that you gained some insights uh, from that conversation, a little bit of the history of this industry, and maybe it'll spark some conversations for you and your team um, about how you're going to handle the future and what's coming down the road. We hope that was really helpful for you. Um, we would love to hear from you. Uh, if you have any questions or clarification points, drop a comment right below this video, or you can send me an email at mike.com. Fowler at salesfactory.com. And don't forget to hit the like button, subscribe, and click the little bell icon so you always know when there's a new episode of Retail Oriented coming out. And thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, when you're thinking about the retail channel, it's all about selling in and selling through.